I don't always have an elegant study in front of me to kick off a WIHI, but today I think I do. In the December 2012 issue of BMJ Quality and Safety, we learned that Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire went from a hand hygiene compliance rate of 41% in 2006 to 87% in 2008 after a three-year initiative focused on leadership and accountability, measurement and feedback, hand sanitizer availability, education and training, marketing and communication. Now, one year after the study, the rank went up to 91%. Reading about the work that went on and the infection rates that went down over this same time period, it's hard not to ask if here or there, why not everywhere, why not 100% or close to it, and what is so difficult about closing the gap on hand washing in healthcare when the serious infection risk of not doing so has been known for over 150 years? Now, there are answers to these questions, and there are solutions. And our guests today have zoomed in on these like a laser. So we're headed over to the sink and the sanitizer dispenser today to discuss everything that's needed to get healthcare providers over there reliably and often as well. That's what com- that's what's coming up on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly and also for your later listening in conven- and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, with a slight cold. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Nearly 3,000 of you enrolled for today's WIHI on hand hygiene, and that too says a great deal about the ongoing challenges and the necessity to figure them out. A reminder, you can tweet during today's program, either during or after. Use the hashtag, hashtag IHI. That way you can include others in our community who are interested in this issue as well. So let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that they have longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades that you can find on their home organizations uh, webpages as well as on the WIHI webpages on IHI.org. Now, Dr. Jean Burke is Vice President and Executive Medical Director for Clinical Effectiveness at Centera Healthcare. He's responsible for the clinical quality, patient safety, infection control, and regulatory standards programs across Centera. Now, Gene works closely with Dr. Scott Miller, who's been Vice President of Medical Affairs at Centera Lee Hospital in Norfolk, Virginia, since 2008. Now, I'm introducing these two gentlemen together because they are a team. They come as a package for today's program, and when it comes to and hygiene and other matters, you're going to learn a lot from both of them. So they're going to be sharing the bill. Welcome, Gene and Scott. Thanks, Madge. Thank you. All right. Great to have you. Okay. Now, purely by accident, I just want to say we're well represented by mid-Atlantic and southern states today. Uh, Dr. Lisa Maragakis is an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University Department of Medicine, excuse me, Division of Infectious Diseases. She's also the hospital epidemiologist and director of the Department of Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. And Dr. Thomas Talbot is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He also serves as the Chief Hospital Epidemiologist for Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Talbot's clinical research focuses on healthcare epidemiology and infection control. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. All right, and thank you. And Tom was running from one thing uh, to another, so we're glad you're here. And I'm lucky I've got somebody in the studio with me here on a snowy day besides John. Uh, Dr. Michael Howell is here. He's the director of the Center for Healthcare Delivery Science and director of Critical Care Quality at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you. All right, so there we go. So um, um, already, if you are logged in, uh, and I do want to say anyone who who's just joined us by phone, if you email us at info at IHI.org, we can also uh, get those um, some of these polling questions out to you as well. But it works. It, it's tied into the WebEx system. So you can kind of watch along with the rest of us if you're only on the phone. 
I have three questions today, and I'm going to kind of pepper them throughout the program, and then we're going to look at the results uh, further into the show so we can really get uh, underway with our substance. But here is the first question we're going to ask you to answer, those of you logged in. What is your healthcare organization's rate of hand hygiene compliance? And you see we've given you as many options. <laughs> I don't know whether a, uh, a survey expert would think I did this well, think of these as our, our, our best best guess of some way to break this down. You've got below 50%, between 50% and 70%, between 70% and 80%, between 80 and 90, above 90, and an I don't know in case you do not know. Um, so go ahead and um, answer that question. A reminder that uh, you're anonymous when you're answering it. Uh, we won't know. And uh, who you are, who's answered it, this will just give us those numbers. Um, and Alan's making some adjustments here. All right, we're all, all set. So, uh, John, should we just kind of keep going along? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's about two minutes left in the poll. All right. So this is your – you've got two minutes to answer that question, and we're going to get underway, and then I'll uh, pop up with the uh, second question. All right. So we have four outstanding organizations that have taken the defects and stubborn plateaus in their organizations with hand hygiene and turned things up a big notch, as I had the pleasure of learning about these past uh, months, in some similar and different ways, and we're going to be interested to find out whether it's similar and different to what you may be engaged in as well. So I'm going to cue, uh, they all have sort of a set of things we ask them to go over, and we're going to start with Santera uh, and Scott and Jean, and then move over to Vanderbilt, then to Johns Hopkins, excuse me, then to Beth Israel Deaconess, and then to Johns Hopkins, and I'll pop in there uh, and um, as we go along and think of questions you want to ask uh, during this portion of the program. So Scott and Jean, uh, we're on to you. Uh, t tell us about uh, how, how you got going on this in some different way, and what have you been learning? Thanks, Madge. This is Gene. So our experience a few years ago was similar to Dartmouth's. When we began looking at our data back in 2003 and 4, we had 60% compliance. Our physician population was in the 40s. The nurses were, the, were better, but we were miserable. And so we put in place a variety of interventions, as you described in the Dartmouth experience, and we improved our hand hygiene to the order where our audits at the time, a couple of years ago, were saying we had about a 95, 96% compliance. But, and we had, we had seen significant reduction in the healthcare-associated infections that we were tracking in our ICUs and otherwise. But with a goal of zero, events of harm, and taking healthcare-associated infections as potential avoidable events of harm, we were looking for another way to get it done. And we identified that uh, the hand hygiene process, as we all know, is really not a matter of our people not having the knowledge or the skills or the tools because by that time everybody in the industry had put foam and gel and soap and sinks everywhere. So um, it was really a matter of execution. Um, the matter of errors of omission wasn't about not knowing what to do or why to do it or having the tools to do it. And so uh, one of the things we wanted to do was how do we get this more front of mind? Because we know that no healthcare worker comes to work expecting to create a problem. They mean to do well. Why weren't they washing their hands? And so we were looking for ways to keep the need front of mind. And for that purpose, we began looking at what can we do more than, than concoct a bunch of good ideas and try to put up posters and signs. And so I'm going to ask Scott to describe the details of what we did. Thank, yes. you. Um, Thank you. Hi, Scott. Yes. Uh, hello, Madge. Um, we... Uh, uh, contracted with a, a consultant who uh, helped us with a multivariant uh, testing process. Uh, the basic uh, principle uh, was that we would test practical, fast, cost-free, and sustainable ideas. We would test them in uh, recipes, if you will, combinations of those, um, with the uh, understanding that when you do this, you can test a lot of things uh, simultaneously in a very quick uh, way. Uh, historically, when you f uh, test ideas like this, you find that about 25% of them help, 50% of them make no difference, and a full 25% uh, uh, hurt you. Um, the very first thing that we did when, we, when the consultant came on board was to realize that our audit process was flawed. We thought we were around 95% uh, compliant with uh, hand hygiene, but in point of fact, we were around 78%. Uh, 
Um, what we then did was to solicit ideas uh, that had to meet that criteria of being practical, uh, cost-free, fast, and sustainable across our system. Uh, at the time, we tested, we polled uh, uh, 83 different groups across eight hospitals and uh, came up with uh, 364 different ideas. These were uh, gained from frontline staff. These were not gained from uh, people in uh, managerial or uh, director type uh, roles. Uh, these ideas, like I say, had to fit those criteria. Uh, things, examples of these were things like uh, screen savers on the computer to remind you to wash your hands, uh, putting hand hygiene dispensers in the pockets and on the bedside tables of uh, patients, um, uh, signage around the units, etc. cetera. Uh, we uh, then, over a period of uh, six weeks across uh, 48 uh, different units, um, we uh, tested uh, these uh, different ideas in combinations, um, and we came up with, true to form, six ideas that appeared to help. Um, we then did what's called a refining test. This was done across uh, seven hospitals using 32 different combinations on 32 units. And we finally came up with four uh, validated in our culture ideas that would help with hand hygiene. Uh, those proved to be uh, the administration of a hand hygiene quiz, a written quiz. These, were, these are handed out on a weekly rotating basis. Uh, one week, uh, folks in my uh, level, such as vice presidents and uh, senior leaders, will hand them out. Then the infection preventionists will hand them out one week, and then the safety coaches in another week, it'll be the managers. We also uh, found that by putting a note on the whiteboards that we have in our patients' rooms uh, uh, proved to be effective. This note is something that the RN, uh, caring for the patient, daily uh, puts a note on the board. It may say, I like clean hands, ask me about hand hygiene, blah, 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 but daily that is done. Then we had two signs uh, that seemed to work, and these uh, are very low-tech signs um, that one says stop, wash your hands, another says stop, drop what you're doing, and wash your hands. These are placed at the entryways to all our different units. Um, when we did this, um, and uh, across our system, uh, we found that we could increase our hand hygiene uh, compliance from about 78% to about 92 or 93%. Um, and that's basically what we did. Wow. Okay. And are you, um, are these the pretty much these four things that the continuing, actually, I want to make sure I got all four here. So you have the quiz the notes on the whiteboards, the two signs um, that you talked about, wash your hands and stop, or stop, wash your hands, stop, drop what you're doing, wash your hands. Did I miss a fourth one, or just was, were those the, uh, those are the four, the, including those the Those were the four. Okay. Those were the four, Matt. Okay, got uh -huh. it. And are you sticking with these? Um, are, are these sort of become the things that you continue to perfect? Uh, they're the things that we continue to use, yes, Madge, and we audit against our compliance with them. Okay. And uh, it, it's no surprise to anyone in uh, healthcare that you need to continuously audit and bring back some accountability to the managers and uh, other folks for. Uh, to follow these recommendations. All right. And also, as you can imagine, in any healthcare uh, uh, situation where you have uh, motivated, highly intelligent people, they'll figure out workarounds that you then have to uh, compensate for. All right. Very good. Well, Gene and Scott, thank you. I'm sure folks are going to have a lot of questions. We'll see sort of what the commonalities are in some of the distinct things across the four organizations. All right. John, I want to pop in the second. Uh, uh, thank you. Stand by, gentlemen. I'm going to pop in our second polling question, and that one is, um, so we have the first one. And did we get a good response, John? Absolutely. To the first one. Okay. Here's your second question. 
which one of these is the biggest barrier to better hand hygiene compliance at your organization? Please choose one. And I just want you to know, if we could have you <laughs> choose all that apply, we would. So we're asking, they may all apply, but if you could sort of look down that list really quickly, and um, it, uh, I'll just say very uh, fast, locations of hand sanitizer dispensers and sinks, lack of leadership, lack of staff education, inadequate signage, and reminder systems, lack of accountability, poor monitoring, and auditing systems. You have to choose one, and we want to see kind of what pops up. So again, that poll's open for two minutes, and we're going to keep moving along here. So um, I'm going to now uh, turn, excuse me, turn to Dr. Tom Talbot at Vanderbilt, um, and I'm just so grateful for the ways in which each person that I met as I was creating the show told me about somebody else that I needed to talk to, and that's including Tom Talbot. So, Tom, take it away. Sure. <clears throat> Thank you, Madge. Now, um, just uh, do we have the slides? or have I No, we got your slides, and we'll kind of uh, – poor John, I've got him doing 16 things at once here. <laughs> that's his <laughs> – with the polling as well. But, yes, we'll, uh, we'll show some of your slides as well. Thanks for sharing those. So we'll get those up there. And, uh, but go ahead so, and, and start talking, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll slide those right in. Okay, so um, to give you a little background on Vanderbilt's story, we had had a program watching hand hygiene uh, back from the early 2000s. Uh, we had seven individuals that would audit practice, and we, we thought we were doing okay, uh, but our data were actually um, jumped around 40 50%, and it wasn't until about four years ago that we really had a, a renewed emphasis on hand hygiene. And back then, actually, one of my um, colleagues had a family member in the hospital, and when he noticed how few uh, people actually washed their hands, that was the trigger point. So one of the things that we did back in the summer of 2009 was we re-looked at hand hygiene, and we wanted to do a couple things. One was prevent infections in patients and healthcare workers. Another was take a practice that's reflexive and, and make it habitual if it's not already habitual, which is a hard thing to do. Um, but use this as a driver of culture driver of a culture of shared accountability, driver of a culture of professionalism, driver of an erosion of the traditional silos, and where people can speak up and say, do the right thing. So what we did was, and I think um, somewhere in the slides is kind of, you'll see our old data with uh, 58% and, and seven observers. We very quickly began um, getting, <clears throat> A, a leadership commitment to improve. One thing that we also have here is a self-insured malpractice trust. And one of my partners uh, had had for several years a rebate program to the clinical departments that if you do things that reduce risk of lawsuits, like disclosure training, uh, you will get money, and it's not insignificant. And four years ago, it happened to be his family member that he noticed no one washed their hands. So he said, we're going to make, uh, we're going to tie some money to hand hygiene, and we're going to hold the departments accountable. And we're going to hold you accountable to the same number. So you could be a, an ICU in the adult hospital and do it very well, but if the children's hospital doesn't do it well, you don't get your money. That was one big thing. We had the leadership commitment. We had standardization, so how do you measure? And we spent a lot of time on measurement. Um, we had, like I said, this shared ownership. And on the, the next slide, so you, the slide you see here is our prior data. Uh, and, and one of the earlier slides basically shows we basically had every unit and clinic provide an observer to the observer pool, and what I like to say is everybody in the pool. And that basically created this ownership where um, every unit had a manager that went somewhere else to get the data, and someone was coming to your area to get the data and provide that. It allowed them to know that it was important. It allowed them to actually look at practices to take back their unit, and that was a very key practice. And really, I think, helped everyone own it together. The next thing we did was, and you'll see on this slide right now, is we provide feedback of data. And this is an example of our scorecard, and we were very transparent on our scorecard, and we would post on a monthly basis, we still do, where you perform compared to the peers in your building. And so if you're at the top of that graph, you're very happy. If you're not, but your neighbor is, we, we want you to go down the hallway and ask your neighbors, how do you guys get hand hygiene? How do you seem to understand it? <clears throat> and that, along with marketing, along with placing more and more dispensers, making it accessible, making it reflexive, uh, making people accountable, got us to a hand hygiene rate of about 80%. And we were actually very pleased. And I think one of the graphs, maybe the next graph, I don't know if I can. That's all right. Is that the one on a, a which it's. I've a, got it. Oh, you got it? All right. Tell us which one yes. it is. <laughs> so it's slide uh, 11. You see that we actually got an improvement in our hand hygiene. We're about 80%. And okay. we felt pretty good about ourselves. We had more data. We had improvement. But then we astutely noted that that's still one out of five times that people don't wash their hands. 
So the next thing we did, and you can kind of see the results there, is we actually began to do um, more active intervention. And we used a model of that Dr. Hickson at Vanderbilt uses for provider complaints. And he's found that if you're a provider that has a high level of patient complaints, you're more likely to get sued. And so he's found that if you tell a provider that they're an outlier and show them their data and work with them, about 75% will improve their practice and not get sued and they'll come back to the norm. Um, others will need more active intervention, so meeting with their chairman, et cetera. So we use that with his intervention pyramid to try and improve uh, behavior. Uh, and I think we've got that on a slide too. There we go. So we had to train the observers how to correct people in the, in the real time. So that if you see someone not washing your hands, we call it a have a cup of coffee with them. Say, Dr. Talbot, I noticed you didn't wash your hands. Please don't forget to do that. It's very easy to say but hard to do when you're in someone else's uh, environment. If you respond unprofessionally, that is reported through our Veritas system, and that is not within line with our credo. And fortunately, those instances were rare, but they did happen. And then we had uh, a leadership team, including chiefs of staff, chief nurses officer, that we look at the data every month and look for these similar patterns of performance, like Dr. Hickson does with provider complaints. And units that have continuing low compliance would get a letter saying, we want to make you aware that performance is low, this is important, we want to work with you, please address it, we'll keep working with you. If you don't improve, you get advanced up the pyramid and actually have a face-to-face -face with the chief of staff and the chief nursing officer. And if you make it up to the top of the pyramid, you meet with the vice chancellor. There on the slide, you'll see a copy of the letter that we provide. Uh, we still do these monthly. And to give you a sense over time, when we first started, we were giving letters. If you were like 60%, you got letters. You were kind of the, the low man on the totem pole. Now, this year, our threshold is if you're below 88%, getting a letter. And with that, we've been tremendously successful, both improving compliance. We've now been above 91% for about a year and a half. Um, but also, when you go on the units, you really do sense a change in the cultures. You sense that, that people can, are improving practice. And as importantly, you'll see on the slide now, we actually we can't prove causation, but our infection rates have gone down. Now, we do a lot to reduce infections. This is a busy slide, but shows you each dot is a month. On the x-axis is our monthly compliance with hand washing. On the y-axis is a composite of our device infections. And over the five years of study, months that had high hand hygiene had low infections. Seems intuitive, but it took data like this for some individuals to say, wow, this does make a difference. Let's keep doing it. Um, so we've had a lot of facets to our program and are continuing to kind of push forward to get into the mid-90s and sustain it. Okay. That's terrific. And uh, thank you, Tom, and uh, <laughs> riding uh, the uh, the wave here with, with the slides. And list, regular listeners to WHI may really know that um, we're not a PowerPoint-driven program. Um, however, we do recognize with certain topics it does help to have these visuals. And hand hygiene, among other things, uh, trying to show trends here, does rely on some interesting tools. And so I think it, it does help uh, to see. So thank you, uh, Tom Talbot uh, from uh, Vanderbilt. Stand by, and we're going to move along now. And uh, Lisa, we're coming to you after Michael, but now we'll turn things over to Michael Howell here in the studio with me to talk about what's been going on at Beth Israel Deaconess. Thanks. Sure, thanks. So un unlike, I think, some of the other discussants, we're going to talk about um, really early experimental pilot work that we're doing just in our intensive care units at the, at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Um, we started off from a pretty good place. So we, in going back to 2006, I think like everyone in the country, had had compliance rates of 30 percent, 40 percent with hand hygiene and using some of the techniques that have been discussed and others were able to move our average ICU hand hygiene compliance up north of 90% on a consistent basis uh, with some heterogeneity in the units. As some folks have already discussed, every measure of hand hygiene is fundamentally flawed, um, but we were pretty sure that we were seeing something real because we saw things like our uh, our ICU nosocomial MRSA acquisition rates go down by 80 or 90 percent over over similar time periods. And as we began to look for this year, what were we going to do to move from 90 percent to 100 percent, or from 95 to 100? Um, we had what 
we think are a couple of small um, insights that in retrospect seem even sort of stupid to say out loud. So the, the first is that hand hygiene is a task embedded in a really complex process. And at minimum, most of the time, if you are in an intensive care unit, you are transporting critical supplies like medications or a central line. You are applying personal protective equipment. You are doing hand hygiene, it is true. But when we talk to our Patient Family Advisory Council, they tell us that the time when you enter the room is one of the most important times to communicate uh, with people. And we had spent a lot of time focused on hand hygiene, but if you were to go to one of our rooms, which looks a lot like any intensive care room, glass doors, a curtain which is considered contaminated, and gowns outside, and you imagine carrying your medications and trying to do uh, and trying to do hand hygiene and put on personal protective equipment, it's actually biomechanically impossible to do that and close the curtain um, at the same time. And we had sort of done workarounds, and you would see people with goop in one hand um, wandering in. So, so that was one relatively obvious uh, insight. The second was that this practice occurs at truly industrial scale. So in our ICUs alone, in one hospital in Boston, we go into or out of rooms about 14,000 times per day. And to put that in context, if you waste 10 seconds every time you go into or out of a room, you've just spent more than seven FTEs of work. Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to partner with our infection control uh, team who had made those tremendous strides in our hand hygiene work and in our acquisition, uh, in, in reducing our acquisition of many hospital acquired infections, but also with a group that has uh, actual industrial engineers in the hospital, our Office of Business Transformation. And if you lock some industrial engineers and frontline providers in a room, um, you come out with something really surprising. Uh, and surprisingly obvious. So if you map what we now agree in this one pilot unit that we're working on is our standard process. And there are many different permutations of what you're carrying and where they have to put on a gown. But if you just look at one common one, what we would agree now is that you ought to go into the room, say hello to the patient or family and tell them what you're doing, put your stuff down that you're carrying, put on your gown, clean your hands, and then put on your gloves. And you'll notice that that uh, requires some readjustments to the way that we usually think. It requires, it, we're fortunate enough to have rooms big enough to support this, but having the personal protective equipment inside the room and having the hand hygiene inside the room and actually when we talk to our patients and families in their line of sight. And it one of the things that has been really remarkable to us about this is that, number one, is it's essentially impossible to do this when you try to go in a room without, uh, without cleaning your hands. But once you get used to it, it is nearly impossible to go back the other way because it is, um, it is so dumb. The, the other thing that um, became apparent, and again, it should have been obvious at the beginning, is that one communication standard uh, is not adequate, that Patients and families want different things, particularly at night when they're resting. Some patients and families want to be woken up and told every time you're in the room. Some patients and families want never to be woken up. Um, and that that becomes a complicated implementation task. But as we have begun to audit um, that piece of linking uh, linking a little bit of patient-centeredness to something that we do 7,000 or 14,000 times a day, uh, we've really begun to see improvements in the way that we communicate linked to what in, in this unit in particular is already a very highly reliable process. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much. For uh, so far, three organizations, some overlap, but some unique things going on. And I think, Michael, at Beth Israel, we're really going to be keen to see uh, once uh, kind of you move through this. Um, is Are there already plans to migrate out from ICU? Well, so, so we've been piloting. We really selected our highest performing unit to starting because we were very aware that we might break something that works. Uh, and our first stage of spread, once we feel like we have the communication component right, will be to our other eight ICUs uh, in the hospital. 
All right. Very, very good. Okay. So that uh, was Michael Howell, and uh, we're, we'll get to your questions in just a minute. But last but not least, uh, least I should say, is Lisa, uh, Dr. Lisa Maragakis uh, from Johns Hopkins, and we're thrilled. And we also hope uh, all of you who've joined us today, and uh, we're close to 1,700 of you uh, with us right now, so glad, uh, will understand that we decided we would sort of stuff this show a little bit with a lot of good information. Uh, and organizations and exemplars, um, give, it, it gives you great opportunities, I think, to follow up, uh, learn more, uh, follow up with these organizations as you wish, and, of course, uh, use look at the slides that we've shared today. And, again, if you're on the phone, ask for them by emailing info at IHI.org. Okay, uh, Lisa Marigakis, tell us what's been going on at Johns Hopkins. Okay, thank you, Matt. Um I'm very happy to be able to uh, to share our story. It's been a long one, and it it does have a lot of overlap with uh, what's already been outlined. But essentially, we had um, uh, the infection preventionist measuring hand hygiene in the early 2000s, and and uh, we're somewhat under the illusion that we were we were all washing our hands. And uh, really, in 2007 uh, was when we implemented a a rigorous measurement system to really understand. Uh, whether we were or were not uh, good at this, uh, we suspected that we were not, and we found out uh, by rigorous me- monitoring that we were in the 30 to 40 percent compliance range, and, and this was, of course, unacceptable and, uh, and really needed a, a, a aggressive intervention to try to, to change this. It's been a long road, and I will say that... Um, a lot of it involved, uh, our early work involved convincing our colleagues of our methodology for measurement. I think that can't be uh, overemphasized how difficult that is and how much struggle there is of really understanding whether, uh, what, what is your hand hygiene compliance and what is the best way to measure. Uh, we used an in and out methodology, so entering the room and exiting the room as a proxy for uh, monitoring hand hygiene. And, uh, and spent a lot of time uh, on the definitions and some of the challenges that other guests have brought up, including um, the uh, issue of arriving at a patient's room with your hands full uh, and other challenges, what to do about the special um, circumstance when you're bringing in a tray and other things. Um, so once we had gotten through that, I, I really do think that, and it took uh, a year or more, really, to get the culture change where we had buy-in the definitions, that the data were accurate, and that everyone was, was sort of on board, that this was an important uh, intervention, and that everyone really believed that, wow, we, we, we are not performing as well as we need to on this. Uh, we had tremendous leadership support, visible uh, signage and um, leaders of our organization uh, that really challenged everyone to um, to make this a top priority, we had a very visible raise your hand, take the pledge uh, uh, campaign so that there was even a, a body language sign that was available to uh, raise your hand if you saw somebody uh, forgetting hand hygiene to try to do that as a reminder. Um, we put together a hand hygiene task force of leaders from the units to really get that frontline knowledge of what were the barriers and and what kinds of things they thought would work uh, to increase hand hygiene on their units. We, of course, did all of the the basics about reviewing our dispensers and our products and and the location of dispensers to make it easy and take away barriers. And and like others have described, we really tried to um, make the habit of hand hygiene. I think that we also thought that it needed to be front of mind, and we used the seatbelt analogy that... um, Really, this needs to be something where it is so ingrained in what is otherwise a very complex set of um, actions that the healthcare providers are doing at the bedside that they um, really feel wrong when they enter a room without touching the, the Purell dispenser and, and cleaning their hands or going to the sink and cleaning their hands. Um, I think we're getting there now, but it, it has been you know five to six years of, of really um, hammering on this. Some of the things that I think really made a difference, um, all of those things I think that I've described so far were what I would call the basics, and it got us from the 30 or 40% range up into the mid-70% compliance range. Um, and the push to really get into the 
and plus percent uh, compliance, I think involved several things. One of it was one one thing was a realization that when you see a compliance rate of seventy five percent, that doesn't necessarily mean that every healthcare provider is washing their hands seventy five percent of the time. What we realized by doing more nuanced studies of the behaviors that were happening is that we really had very high-performing individuals who almost always washed their hands, and we also had low-performing individuals that almost never washed their hands. Um, And so we tried to introduce a more targeted approach. And so we now have parallel programs, one by which we do unseen or unknown observers that are collecting our compliance data, and another program by which we have direct feedback so that an individual who is seen not washing their hands is confronted on the spot, um, given a reminder, given an educational moment, and handed a piece of paper with some information. Uh, and that paper also goes to uh, the managers um, so that there is direct feedback at the moment, as well as an accountability model that we have worked to implement, uh, much as Tom described, where there are escalating series of um, friendly and then less friendly uh, ways to remind and hold that individual accountable. Um, And I think that accountability and that direct feedback and and targeted approach is really to be credited with getting us the rest of the way there. Um, And then uh, similar, uh, again, to to one of Tom's slides, we have a unit uh, ranking sheet that I also think was instrumental in really getting that competitive spirit amongst units and ownership of the data there's nothing like being at the bottom of that of that ranking graph um, and hearing from the president of the hospital. Um, uh, and we look at that on a monthly basis, and we also compile an honor roll of units that have performed well for three months in a row. Um, and at first, we were compiling a list of units that had struggled uh, for three months in a row, and that list quickly evaporated. So I, I do think that, that that's really... Um, been the key to uh, to our success of late. Wow. Okay. Lots of interesting uh, aspects there. And um, one of the takeaways from your remarks, of which there are many for all our presenters today, is kind of uh, segmenting a bit in terms of high-performing individuals and low-performing individuals, um, realizing that there can be a way of misreading 75% or 85% or even 95% compliance um, if you're not actually uh, looking carefully of who is and who isn't. So thank you, Lisa. All right. John already snuck in our third question, and this is our final poll, and this um, is a, you can choose uh, one or the other. Uh, kind of relates to some things Lisa just said. Which of these apply to your organization? It is our culture to speak up when someone is observed not following hand hygiene pro- protocol. That's You can choose that. Or, it is not our culture to speak up when someone is observed not following hand hygiene protocol. And we've been hearing about all kinds of ways people are trying to sort of build in this accountability. Um, all right, so go ahead and um, uh, fire away on that poll, and we'll give you all the answers moments shortly. But let's get into uh, chat and Q&A. And I'm going to start uh, kind of uh, – we'll, we'll go back to Scott and uh, Jean. Um, it looks like a um, – and John, I guess we can slide right into chat. Any special instructions? Just make sure that you uh, send your chat to all participants. Thank you. That's the main yeah. ruling. So that you don't send them all to John. Don't send them all to me. <laughs> right. uh, they are. They, we have gotten some great questions, and the poll is closed. So. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you all for participating in that. We'll give you the answers momentarily. So, Scott and Jean, it looks like uh, some folks are really uh, took to heart your comment, and several people spoke to this. We thought we were doing a lot better. Uh, uh, than we were, and auditing uh, showed us uh, otherwise. So people are both interested in what are the best auditing process, but what was wrong with what you were doing, and then what did you decide to do instead? Uh, well, I'll tackle that one, and Jean can chime in. Um, what we had done uh, previously uh, was we had or each unit uh, in every one of our hospitals uh, is supposed to have a safety coach. And the safety coach has multiple uh, assigned uh, duties, but principally to uh, to be, uh, if you will, the proponent of all things uh, that relate to patient safety on their unit. Well, in the previous world, they would audit uh, their unit for hand hygiene. The problem with that is obviously uh, familiarity with the uh, players. Um, and uh, so we found that 
what we had to do to improve our accuracy was a couple of things. One is we ran all the safety coaches through a, a video uh, training session, and they had to be uh, certified, uh, if you will, for hand hygiene uh, auditing. And then we uh, have them go to random units uh, throughout all the hospitals and do the audits um, uh, in other parts of the hospital. Uh, they make excuses for why they're on the other units, uh, things like, oh, I came to visit uh, my friend here or there. Uh, but the idea is that they rotate uh, throughout our different hospitals on a monthly basis uh, auditing different units. Um, that's what we chose to do uh, in Sentara. Okay, thank and this you. Is Gene, and, you know, we heard Tom say that they were already doing that, if I'm correct, because Tom described how managers left their unit, went out and audited other units, and then would come back, and not only had they provided feedback to the unit they looked at, but they came back with sort of lessons from somewhere else that they can import back to their own unit. So it was, it was fascinating to hear Tom describe that process there. Okay, great. Tom, anything you want to say about the auditing issue? No, I will tell you that that really helped us, I think, get buy-in. And, and also, I think I mentioned that, that we now have kind of a linked accountability because if one unit doesn't get their data, they go out to give other feedback, and then they don't have that as well. Um, I will tell you that one thing that helped us get benefit, not just the formal observers going out, but if we had any um, leaders that were skeptical of the measurement of the process, one of the most effective things that we did was say, you know, take 15 minutes and let's round. And very quickly, they would realize that assumptions about <clears throat> practices that were happening in the area really were melted away. And we had one leader that was a high-level leader in one of our hospitals that thought this was crazy. And within 10 minutes, he realized, oh, my goodness, we really never do wash our hands and took it to heart. So that's another tool we've used not just for the, the formal data but for to kind of convince our skeptics, too. Great. Thank you, um, Scott, uh, Jean, and Tom. Um, I want to um, – this is maybe a question for Tom, but maybe some others can jump in on this. Several people are asking about how folks react when confronted. Uh, it may depend on how, the letter, uh, the conversation. Uh, let's go have a cup of coffee, <laughs> uh, ratcheting up. Um, I don't know. Do, do you want to start with that? Um, I guess, Tom, you spoke of the letter. Why don't we start with that letter notion, which uh, since we had a slide about that, then I'll get others to chime in. Yeah, I'll tell you, the, the letters um, early on, <clears throat> they, they, we got some pushback, not, not uniformly about measurements or this is why there are issues in my unit, it's the people traveling on, it's not my folks, et cetera. Um, but I'll tell you that as we've <clears throat> gone along, now when we send out letters, when we send it out this past few months for below 88%, I, I got no pushback. I got folks saying, we're going to work on it, here's our action plan, how can we help? Um, and so people really have become used to it and have, I think, um, either we've beaten them down or, or I think it's a significant changing of the culture regarding the attitude towards those. Lisa, what about you uh, in terms of ways in which people, uh, for lack of a better word, are confronted, uh, noticed <laughs> for in, in their, their behavior, and, and that's brought to their attention? How has that worked out? Well, it's actually worked out very well. We were, we were extremely mindful of um, who we asked to do this. Um, first of all, it's a difficult thing to do all day long, um, and so we don't, have, we don't have people that spend hours and hours doing it. I think you have to... Um, maybe half a day, uh, the right person could do it. Uh, we actually were fortunate enough to um, have an individual who had a background in security who was really probably used to, to uh, approaching people because of her previous um, training and job and does it in a, in a lovely way, just a very uh, firm but very nice way. Um, we also combined the, the observation with education. Um, so that it is an educational moment, and we share with them our um, healthcare-associated infection and, and transmission of multi-drug-resistant organism data, um, really trying to take the time to show them why it's important and, and explain what opportunity they missed, answer any of their questions about how we monitor hand hygiene, so that it's, it's really an opportunity to have a conversation rather than an accusation, so to speak. Okay. That being said, some people, uh, you know, of course, do become defensive. Um, most uh, just take the take the opportunity to take the information and go on their way. Yeah. Um, and we certainly have 
mechanisms to escalate, uh, as Tom described earlier, you know, if there's inappropriate reaction or behavior, we, we would deal with that as well. Great. Thank you very much. Um, somebody has mentioned or made reference to the My Five Moments for Hand Hygiene, which is a World Health Organization approach, and that uh, will, I have a link on, we have a link on that, uh, to that on our resource document. You can find that as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to just put that out there. Gene and Scott and uh, folks are really, and Tom, I think folks are really interested in some of your tools, excuse me, your quizzes, uh, your uh, any auditing tools, and um, so we'll we'll uh, talk amongst ourselves maybe after the program about any additional things that we might be able to share uh, with our wonderful participants today. I want to ask Michael to maybe jump in on this issue about people being uh, spoken to, and then somebody had a very particular question for you about the advantages of hand hygiene in the room as opposed to outside. Yeah, so so on the on the first issue, we also um, used we had small educational documents that we gave to frontline staff and other staff in the ICUs with the um, with the mission actually to use that as a way to encourage individuals to improve. Um, and we saw really a wide divergence in responses from people being uh, so shamed they felt like they could never come back to the ICU to people taking it in the way it was intended to people becoming apoplectic and then having to talk to chief of service. We, we knew that we had had some success when um, this is years ago before our current chair of surgery, but when a frontline nurse stopped the chair of surgery and gave the chair of surgery this document and had a discussion about hand hygiene. Um, and, and much of that continues to today. To the second question, um, in our built environment, the reason that having hand hygiene inside the room, and in particular the personal protective equipment inside the room helps, is because the curtain is considered contaminated. And we think that it is very important that most of us, before we are disrobed and have our body shown to the world, would want the curtain pulled. And so if you clean your hands and then pull the curtain, well, then you have to clean your hands again, and you've just wasted um, time and Purell and effort, or you clean your hands, touch a contaminated curtain, and then the utility of the hand hygiene is okay. gone. Thank you very much. Somebody asked, uh, this was a question that uh, came a little earlier, most labor and delivery unit units, I guess, in medical centers have high hand hygiene rates. I suppose that's true. Anyone can speak to that. Are there any lessons to learn from this area of the hospital? And perhaps any units more challenged uh, than and others. Um, what, what do you think, Michael, from your sense of uh, the lay of the land? I mean, I think it is true that, at least in our shop, labor and delivery has a very high rates of hand hygiene. And there is, um, we have talked about this with a fair number of people. It's not totally clear to me. I think that people feel um, very attentive to protecting new moms and babies. Um, and that the environment there is the, – the built environment is a little bit more conducive to that as perhaps is the patient population compared to patients with um, – who may change from second to second or minute to minute. Mm-hmm. But I suspect others on the, on the line have yeah. – more thoughts. What about a uh, gentleman from Centera? What if, um, are there some particular things that are uh, you, you found you could emulate from going from the labor and delivery area? Well, our read on that is that um, it's the sense that there is a, a vulnerability of the people around you, the babies, and and it changes the mindset. Um, similarly, on the uh, units with immunosuppressed patients, you consistently see high execution of hand hygiene because there is that connection of this is a vulnerable person. Um, whereas out on the general med surge unit, it's the, the, the moment if you go into a room and you've not bothered to clean your hands, there's not an immediate consequence. You know, it's, it's maybe two or three days later if the patient actually becomes clinically ill from being contaminated, and then it's, well, how many other two dozen people went in and out of the room? There isn't the connection between my personal behavior and an injury to the individual, and there isn't the sense of vulnerability. And we, we thought about how to increase that, and we spent some time trying to heighten awareness of the, the fact that uh, hospital-acquired infections largely represent avoidable harm. That's why you heard Scott describing, we see this as part of the general safety, safety initiative. This is not an isolated campaign just to have clean hands. This is avoiding harm. And so we tried to frame it in that context, and that's 
I believe, part of why we've gotten the level of execution we have. Mm -hmm. That's very, very important. Seems like uh, I got Michael nodding, and I'm sure others have as well. Um, Gene and Scott, I also want to um, reference in the, I don't know if you've noticed in the chat scroll, people are very curious about your quizzes. And um, I don't know, um, again, those maybe that's another uh, document or some samples of that we might be able to put up on our resource page. But can you give an example of a question or two that might be on the quiz that sort of gets people's attention? Oh, sure. But here, let me tell you, uh, I think it's more the delivery of the quiz okay. than what's on, what's the on quiz. it. Okay. <laughs> because here's what happens. Here's me, Vice President of Medical Affairs of the hospital. I walk up to line nurse and I say, gee, you know how important hand hygiene is, don't you? Um, and by the way, it's extraordinarily important to me. Um, and I've got this uh, quiz here that I would like you to fill out. Um, there, there are some simple questions on here. It's an open book quiz, and all I want you to do is fax it in by the end of the day. But um, I think it's the delivery of the quiz more than what's on the quiz. We hear you, now, Scott. But, I think I, I think you're you're reenacting this quite well, and we're all uh, shaking in our boots here. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I mean, it's and and the questions are things like when should I wash my hands when I go into the room, when I come out of the room, uh, what happens in a patient who has Clostridium difficile? Is alcohol sufficient? It's again. The, you know, there's only so many ways you can make a quiz, and we have about six that we send out, you know, and I get to go hand them out. And I, I frankly don't even look at the questions okay. because um, uh, it's more the idea that they know I'm coming with this thing in my hand, and they know uh, that I want them to focus on this. All right. Um, Tench, this is Gene. I, yeah. I want to compliment Hopkins because I had the occasion through some friends to be up there a few years ago, and I want to speak to what they did. It's the same thing. When the elevator door closes and you're inside the elevator, and here is a life-size picture of the CEO of Hopkins holding out his hand with the five fingers extended, which was a, a catchphrase. In, in essence, in Hopkins to remind people, when you've got this life-size picture of the CEO reminding you to wash your hands, there's a leadership moment there. And I think that's the theme, is that when the leadership has a very high-profile position on the significance of hand hygiene, it, it lets everybody know what matters. All right. Thank you very much. Um, all right. I have one question I want to throw out there, and then uh, I think we'll, we'll get a quick uh, message in from John. None of you have talked um, either directly or indirectly about the role of patients and families. And um, I would dare say that over some period of time, of course, we've also been looking at this issue of hand hygiene in terms of an empowerment piece for patients and families, trying to help people have the language, et cetera. On the other hand, it's, it's not always been as effective and seems to put a burden on patients and families and can sometimes cause a lot of alienation. So um, just, I guess, well, we're, we're kind of coming up to the top of the hour, but maybe I'll turn to you, Tom Talbot. Is, is this an aspect of what you're doing? Have you learned some things about uh, whose responsibility it is that's maybe um, helping to evolve this notion of uh, how patients and families can be involved? Yeah, it's an interesting issue. When we took that content to our Family and Patient Advisory Council, um, we got interesting feedback. We thought that, you know, kind of asking them to help us remind each other, and they said, you know, it makes me nervous that we have to do that because it's such a core practice, and they were uncomfortable with that concept. So we do um, advertise that. We put that in our uh, admission brochure to please remind us. We, we have badges that say that. Um, we have developed a pilot in our PEDS clinics that randomly 50 patients a month will be given a card and asked to survey hand hygiene compliance. But we haven't been as successful to push that forward based on feedback from our um, families that say, you know, <clears throat> we, we're glad that you're doing it. We love the signs, but but we want you to be able to do it reflexively and us not have to remind you, which is interesting. I didn't expect that when I started. Yeah, that's very interesting. What about you, Lisa? What about Johns Hopkins? Well, I think we have a similar uh, a similar experience here. We certainly uh, encourage uh, 
patient and family participation, um, as Tom described in our in our written materials, and and we had badges in the past. But we we too found that families and patients are are uncomfortable with speaking up. They're often um, afraid that it's going to interfere with their care or anger their caregivers, and um, so. We, we encourage it and try to be open to it, but um, but try to find other ways so that we're not relying on, on the patients and their families to, to do that. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I, could, I could mention one other thing sure. that we did that sure. had success in pediatrics, though. Um, we had a program that, uh, that we really did like. We took pictures of the children. Uh, who were patients in our pediatric center with their permission and their and their uh, parents' permission, of course, and used those as the hand hygiene reminder signs on the door uh, so that there was actually a picture of that patient saying, please wash your hands before you touch me. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids loved the fact that their picture was up and, <laughs> uh, and the staff really responded well to that. So I think there are, you know, some ways that it can be incorporated. Interesting. Michael, any thoughts on that? We took that uh, question as well to our patient and family advisory committee who echoed what other people have said. They felt uncomfortable. They felt like it was our job. Um, and in the critical care setting, the felt like some of them were comfortable speaking up, but most of them said that they weren't. And uh, so we've not not emphasize that. Okay, very, very good. All right, uh, John Gothier, uh, remind us about our Office Practice Summit coming up, and then we're going to wrap things up with everyone. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Madge. Uh, patient safety may start at high hand hygiene, but it's often a small piece in the big puzzle of improving patient safety and quality. Um, a great place to start solving that puzzle is IHI's International Office Practice Summit, which is being held next month in Scottsdale, Arizona. This year, we'll focus on seeing the future of patient care differently in over 50 sessions on patient-centered care, health IT, the patient-centered medical home and IHI's triple aim. We're also extending a special rate to participants of today's WIHI, $75 off if you register with the password hand hygiene. The Office Practice Summit will, like I said, be held on April 7th, 8th, and 9th in Scottsdale, and we hope you'll join us. And for more information, visit IHI.org backslash summit. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, John. All right. We are going to wrap up. I'm going to make, let's just go around the horn very quickly, a uh, way of also saying thank you. Scott and Jean, love all your content. Uh, if we watch this space and we come back and talk to you in six months to a year, uh, what do you think we'll be talking about? Needing to do the same thing. Okay. <laughs> Realist. I like this. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We did not cure hand hygiene. What did you say? We did not cure hand hygiene. All right, that's that's the headline. So vigilance, we're going to be relentless at this, and I hope uh, today's program helps with that. Tom Talbot, what about you? What do you think we'll be talking about uh, uh, a year from now? I hope it's the same thing. We're trying to move it to a sustained maintenance mode and, and also understand why some units seem to get it rapidly and others didn't. We're trying to look at that as well. Okay, very, very good. Lisa? Oh, I think how to sustain, uh, that's always the, the uh, holy grail of, of any of these efforts. How, do, how can they be sustained? Um, and then really rolling it out into other settings, uh, the outpatient setting and some of our challenges like the emergency department um, and uh, procedural areas as well. All right, thank you. And Michael? Well, I think I'll be talking about what I learned from Hopkins, Terra and uh, <laughs> Vanderbilt. Okay. <laughs> he wasn't paid to say that or anything. Uh, well, this is great. Um, I'm thrilled. I think some of you knew one another. Some of you did not. I hope everyone who joined us today, um, about 1,700 of you, uh, have a sense better of who you are and who to turn to for tools. Uh, as we wind up, first of all, big thank you to Jean and Scott and to Lisa and to Tom and to Michael. Uh, representing four really important organizations, not the only organizations doing good work here, but the four we were able to uh, highlight today. Um, You can let us know uh, kind of how this program worked for you by filling out a brief survey. So, John, very quickly, as we sort of wrap things up here, here are the results of our survey. Uh, If you, again, are only on the phone, you want the survey results, um, email us at info at IHI.org, but you can also uh, download this information when you get off the program today. So, uh, we basically, some encouraging uh, things, uh, which of these apply to your organization
nation. Most people said, um, well, actually, it is not our culture to speak up. Sorry, read that the wrong way. So we have um, some work to do there. Uh, John, what about the other questions there? Um, uh, which one of these is the biggest barrier to better hand hygiene? Um, yeah. Lack of accountability was the highest at 66%. Lack of accountability. Okay, and what about our And then for question? the first one, what is your uh, health care organization's uh, results? Um, we're kind of all over the board. Lots of 17s, lots of 20%, lots of 19s and 13%. So everybody pretty much was uh, all, all across the board there. All across the board. All right. Well, that means uh, hopefully uh, that this program today was a contribution to sort of move those uh, uh, rates up. So we want to thank you. Um, big thank you to our guests. Uh, if you want to share some comments on Facebook, uh, Twitter, please do so. Um, we have a program coming up as we do every two weeks. On March 21st, we're going to be looking at community health needs assessments, a very, very interesting Brave New World for hospitals. Uh, the IRS has gotten involved and uh, sort of turning up the screws on community benefit, trying to make it mean something more around community health. Uh, the webpage is now live. When you get off the show today, you can download the slides, you can download the chat, you can tell us what you thought of the program by filling out a survey. Much appreciated and look for all the resources uh, by tomorrow morning on IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible, in addition to our wonderful guests today, Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and we have a Northeastern co-op, Nicole Wells. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Thank you.